This is the Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks on KQV with expert advice from CPA attorney and retirement and estate planning expert, Jim Lang, the best-selling author of Retire Secure and the Roth Revolution, Pay Taxes Once and Never Again. Now on the air and online worldwide at retiresecure.com, get ready to talk smart money. Hello and welcome to the Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks. I'm your host, Hannah Haytanen Kay, and of course I'm here with Jim Lang, CPA, attorney, and best-selling author of the first and second edition of Retire Secure and the Roth Revolution, Pay Taxes Once and Never Again. Jim's guest tonight is P.J. Denuso, CPA, PFS. He is a nationally recognized expert in investment management who has appeared in or on numerous national and international publications and TV shows. PJ has been rated by Paladin Registry Investor Watchdog as a five-star advisor, scoring in the top 1% out of over 800,000 advisors in America. His firm, Denuso Index Advisors Incorporated, has been consistently ranked as one of the top 500 firms in the country on numerous occasions by multiple national publications. Tonight, PJ and Jim will be discussing what would be a rational response to all this market turmoil. But before we get into the meat of tonight, today's program, we feel morally obligated to tell you that Jim does, does have a financial interest with a portion of our guest's financial planning practice. Usually his guests, whether they are IRA experts, estate planning experts, or even investment experts, are completely independent, and Jim has no financial interest in any business with them. That is not the case with P.J. Genuzzo. P.J. and Jim have an agreement to split fees on accounts that Jim brings to him, and they work on together. Typically, for these accounts, Jim will meet with the clients, and either he or someone in his office will examine such issues as Roth IRA conversions, how much the client can spend, what is going on with the client's estate plan, their retirement plan, and what is going on with their family, etc. That is a different skill than actually managing their money. That is what P.J. and his firm, Denuso Index Advisors, does. Rather than paying each of us a fee, or each of them a fee, they charge a fair fee, 1% per year or less for both of the services that Jim and his office and PJ and his office would normally charge for just investment services. Coupled with the excellent results of low-cost index investing with dimensional funds with PJ and getting strategic direction from Jim and the Lang Financial Group, they believe the client is getting outstanding big-picture advice, as well as excellent money management services, and all for one fair fee that is typical of just investing advice. Before I turn it over to Jim tonight, I want to remind our listeners that the show is live, so please feel free to call in with your request for PJ. The number is 412-333-9385. Again, that is 412-333-9385. Good evening, Jim, and welcome to the show, PJ. Good evening. Uh, PJ, right now, and, and, and we'll get to individual questions, but the overall theme of today's show is what is a rational investor to do in an irrational world? And I've heard this from client after client. Nothing is like it ever was before. We're in complete, you, completely unique in individual time. And some of the trends, when I show people 5 and 10 and even 50 and 70-year periods, they often think that none of that is relevant. So that's going to be, let's say, one of the themes I hope to talk to, to, to tonight. But rather than just going on uh, a general area, 
I thought I would bring up some of the individual things uh, that cause turmoil with uh, our markets and the way we think. So let's start specifically with the debt situation, um, coupled by some populist political victories in both Greece and France. And certainly uh, those countries, particularly Greece, is, are, is really on the ropes. And that will certainly have some international influence. PJ, how do you see what is going on in Europe impacting our economy? And what, if anything, should investors do about it? Um, what I would say, Jim, you know, from and, you, and there's a, a uh, significant number of topics that you're discussing. It, it's almost like a culmination here, as you said, as far as investor emotions with, with sort of what's going on in the four corners of the world right now. Uh, from our perspective, we'd look at this as our response to it would be to stay on your plan. And by staying on your plan, first of all, you'd have to have a plan. So our firm does not do any projections, pro prognosticating. Uh, we, could, uh, we couldn't do have opinions as far as the uh, euro situation in Greece and the challenges uh, with the socialist structure uh, economically. But one thing that's unique, uh, as you had uh, mentioned earlier about the track record, that uh, one of the things that you'll hear during situations such as this is, is the famous phrase, well, quote-unquote, it's different this time. And there are a number of very unique things, again, going on across the world. But when we go back and take a look at and what uh, drives our confidence level in, the, in our portfolio management is, we know what our U.S. large indexes, small large value, small value, have done going back to almost back to the mid-1920s. And if we think about that period of time, some things we can't even appreciate now regarding world wars, uh, regional conflicts across the, the globe, uh, inflation, deflation, stagflation, presidential assassinations. So really as uh, trying as these times are for some individual investors, uh, we would get back to our mantra to stay on your plan and oftentimes times that we find where we're meeting with individuals for the first time is they really don't have a plan uh, under that scenario i would agree that a high degree of anxiety it, it would be appropriate because they don't have a plan well w one of the things i, I mean i i kind of get it you know i'm trying to picture um what it was like let's even say uh during the world wars uh, World War One, World War Two, uh, Korean War. I actually have a lot of engineers. If you want to make an engineer happy, ask them for the intricate details of the bomb shelter that they dug out. And I'm not kidding, by the way, and there's a lot of engineers smiling right now, that they dug out in their backyard because they actually feared that there was going to be a nuclear attack. And so sometimes we think that we're in such unique times that have nothing to do with anything else and that the scariest times imaginable and sometimes we forget hey we have been through obviously not identical scary times but different times would you say that the people who have already gone through these different things the world wars the depressions the inflation the deflation the stagflation the presidential uh, assassinations um, people who were worried about literally getting 
uh, blown to smithereens, that the people who actually stayed with their plan that whole time uh, ended up doing better. Uh, yes, they yeah they would uh, have ended up doing better. The numbers for Dalbar uh, Research uh, Company out of Boston, Massachusetts, just over the past twenty year periods of time, the average individual equity investor has done between three to four percent per year, capturing only about forty percent of the rate of return of the actual funds that they were in. So again, from our perspective, when we're doing our financial planning, retirement income planning, along and dovetailing that into the investment management strategy and asset allocations that are appropriate, uh, that's, again, what we see is that void, that lack of a plan. And in that case, uh, as I said, if you don't have a plan, I mean, there is going to be a, a high degree of anxiety in a lot of cases. All right. Now, what you, what you said, I'm gonna, I want to dissect that a little bit because I think what you said is very important. So what you're saying is that this highly accredited research company came out and said that investors get between 3 and 4% less of our annual return than the underlying investment. So let's say somebody is in the XYZ mutual fund, and over a five or 10 year period, the XYZ mutual fund averages, uh, let's say, 6% um, rate of return, including both dividends and depreciation. Is what, what you're saying is somebody who is invested in that mutual fund, um, and let's, for, let's forget fees for the moment, um, would would be getting three or four percent less than the fund gets. Yeah, with uh, with doll bars, and if we use a, a round number just to make the math easy, if the average rate of return for the active mutual fund that individuals were invested in over a period of time, if the total return was ten percent, the average individual owner their return was forty two percent. So let's say four point two percent. You know, four to four and a half percent was their total return. And what you see again is. Wait, so, so it's a 5.8% difference? Yes, yeah, it's astonishing. And, and it's the same thing on the bond side also. Bonds aren't any easier for the average individual to hold on to either. The average hold time for the average individual investor is approximately three three years and three months, about three and a quarter years. So uh, they, they come to the party late and they leave the party early. They're, they're constantly changing their portfolio holdings, uh, rotating you know, every three to four years. All right, so let's let's bring that back to the situation in Europe right now. So let's say right now that somebody has a well-diversified portfolio that includes some some funds that have some companies that are headquartered in somewhere in Europe. Um, and right now, if, you know, I know it, it's pretty natural to to think, oh my goodness, you know, I have I have uh, I have an interest in a mutual fund or in your case, because you do actually index funds, I have inde- I have an interest in index funds that are headquartered in Greece or France or one of these places with tremendous financial turmoil, and I'm feeling pretty uneasy about it. And let's say that I get nervous, and I think I think frankly a lot of people were were tuning in expecting you to say, "Oh yeah, get the heck out of everything that's European," but maybe the price of these mutual funds and index funds are lower exactly because of the turmoil and that rather than it being uh, something to be dreaded and feared, it might be an economic opportunity. Is that is that right? 
Yes, it would be from a rebalancing portfolio perspective, it would be an economic opportunity. For example, the first major asset class, if we just think of that in plain English of different areas across the world to invest in, U.S. large and small stocks, international large and small emerging markets, international large value stocks just went negative the other day. Uh, the, the year got off to a very nice start, but as the euro crisis has continued to escalate, it's showing up in, in the European prices. And generally, uh, across the board, whenever you're investing in an asset class, as you said, it, you would hope that you know that these areas aren't going out of business, that they're going to provide a uh, – they're going to regress to the mean. I mean, if they've averaged a certain – uh, rate of return due to the premiums that are in that area of the market, yeah, you feel reasonably certain if you hold that over the rest of your life that you're going to get close to that rate of return would be to the expectations. And again, I need to mention here, Jim, if anyone's scratching their head on this one, that um, if you if you do your planning properly, as we've discussed before, you, you need to take care of your food, clothing, shelter, and transportation costs, your fixed core expenses in retirement, with a different type of portfolio. That's going to be something that's a guaranteed, guaranteed income, an ultra-conservative portfolio, a U.S. laddered bond portfolio, et cetera. So you can truly match up the rest of your portfolio with your true risk tolerance, which you see in a lot of cases individuals don't have that taken care of. Again, there hasn't been any planning. And then again, justifiably so, they have their entire portfolio floating up and down with the market and they're reading the paper and watching the stock channels and looking at their portfolio and saying, hey, you know, that I have to grab my electric bill out of there somewhere, and it does heighten their anxiety. So they need to, uh, you know, go through a more thorough planning process, take care of their risk capacity first, get that out of the way where they can be able to enjoy the premiums that are available in the market over the rest of their retirement plan. Again, we're looking at, on average, at least a 30-year plan for every client, client that enters retirement so if, we're ta- if we initially are talking to someone five to 10 years before they retire, you're looking at a 35 to 40-year plan. And uh, with that amount of time on your side, the probabilities are extraordinarily high uh, that you're going to achieve success. All right. Now, if, if I actually do want to get back to the different, the different asset allocation portfolios because I think that's really important. And it's also very important in the, in the context of, of our discussion. But what I, one of the things that I um, I heard was if you are doing so so right now let's say Europe uh, and international funds are down presumably bec- because of the exact things that we're reading in the paper, but that you're not going to be using that money to pay your electric bill. That money is going to be invested in the long term. That if the price is down now because of what might be considered noise, that it actually might be a buying opportunity. And again, I know that you're not an active money manager trying to outsmart the market, but I do know that you have um, both an automated and with a, a human eye look at asset allocation and diversification and rebalancing. So if somebody, let's say, lost a significant portion of their investment in let's say international markets because it went down that you wouldn't say oh gee we better get out completely before it goes down more you would say hey this is an opportunity to actually get something not because it's 
based on your analysis that it's a great price, but just because based on the original plan that you had that had a certain percentage of international, you're now lower than that percentage. Yes, and you'd want to maintain that. Actually, right now, if you were in a scenario where uh, you're doing rebalancing in the portfolio and your uh, clients were taking a withdrawal out of portfolio, if there was a need to do the rebalancing trades in a scenario such as this, you could hypothetically be selling some U.S. large-cap stocks, which have done the best today, the S&P 500, and buying into some international large-cap stocks, which have done the worst. Again, emotionally, your gut feeling when you look at that is it's counterintuitive. You would say, you know, this, this appears to be painful. Why am I doing this? But again, over the long run, you're going to be well rewarded by rebalancing in that manner. All right. So if I, if I get this right, the, the natural reaction is, oh, my goodness, Europe is miserable. And we'll talk about some of the other miserable areas of the world and the investment uh, community. Um, so I better get out. But what you're doing then is you're ultimately selling low. And then when things, quote, look good or are back to normal, if, if there is such a thing, then you, and you're feeling good about it, you're bu- then you buy. So what you're ultimately doing is you're selling low and buying high, which is, I guess, one of the primary reasons that a mutual fund investor gets such a small percentage. And what is it again? You said if it's 10% for the mutual fund, that the average investor is only getting about 6%? I know forty-two percent of that number. So, four, technically, four point two percent is their rate of return in the last twenty years. See, see, that's that's so incredible to me. So, doing what probably a lot of people were expecting for us to say, "Hey, yeah, Europe is miserable. Get out of there," or you know, with uh, the U.S. economy, it's time to go to all cash or something like that. That if they do that type of behavior, which I think is fairly typical, particularly for. Um, a non-professional uh, uh, investor who who reads the papers and uh, who listens to the radio, etc., that they're only going to get four point something percent out of ten percent for an investment that does ten percent. And and what you had mentioned, Jim, you know, whenever individuals do get out of the market and they want to get back in. Generally, the market has to move up at least 20% off of the bottom before the average individual is comfortable moving it back into the market. So if you miss a 20 or 25% run, again, that's one of the chief factors that contributes to that low rate of return. Okay, guys, we're going to have to take a quick break. Uh, I do want to mention to Jim, because he brought up bomb shelters, we're one of those families that has one in our backyard, 16 by 20 <laughs> foot bomb shelter, <laughs> complete with air holes and escape hatch, the whole bit. So that kind of was interesting. Uh, when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation. And I do want to remind our listeners out there that we are live tonight. If you have any questions for PJ or Jim, please give us a call at 412-333-9385. We'll be right back with PJ Denuso and Jim Lang on the Lang Money Hour. The Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks, featuring the expert advice of Pittsburgh-based CPA attorney Jim Lang. More coming up on KQVAM 1410. The Lang Money Hour continues on KQVAM 1410. For all of your financial needs, turn to Lang Financial Group in Squirrel Hill, 412-521-2732. Let's talk more smart money. Welcome back to the Lang Money Hour. This is Hannah Haytanen Kay, and I'm here with Jim Lang and PJ Denuso. Um, PJ, it's actually interesting that you mentioned something about sticking with your asset allocation. 
because I remember uh, that one of my favorite financial authors of all time, Jonathan Clemens, formerly of the Wall Street Journal, used to say it's more important to stick with your financial plan and your financial asset allocation than actually having the best one to begin with. In other words, if, whether you're somewhat conservative or in the middle or uh, or even aggressive, that it's better to kind of stay the course. But I wanted to go back because you said something about if you're counting on your international stocks, for example, that typically are the most volatile or emerging markets or something like that, to pay for your electric bill next month, then maybe it would be pretty nerve-wracking to have investments in some of these volatile areas. But you also mentioned that uh, you really literally have different asset allocations for different purposes. Now, I think a lot of people think that intuitively. So, you know, for the next year, I want to have most of my money in cash and something very conservative, then maybe one to five years a little bit more aggressive, uh, six to ten years, etc. Can you talk, but but usually most financial advisors, and, I, and for, for no other reason other than perhaps it's just additional work to set up separate accounts, can you talk a little bit about separate accounts and different asset allocation strategies for different purposes of the money? Sure, Jim. Uh, this go this all goes in with the you know the heavy lifting up front instead of just you know everybody wants to get out there and just manage money, but there's a lot of groundwork that needs to be laid first. And what we tell clients, you know, after we've gone through a personal balance sheet for them, their assets and liabilities and a current income statement, retirement projections, one of the things that we'll tell them hypothetically, if they were to mentally just hypothetically uh, bring all their portfolios in and we were to monetize that and stack up their money from the floor to the ceiling and take a look at that stack, uh, dollar bills uh, towards the bottom of that stack versus the middle versus the top, uh, although they may look the same when we pull them out of that stack, are really quite different. Uh, the initial at the bottom uh, regarding cash reserves, you know, if you have 12 months set aside for your average monthly expenses, at least 12 times that number, then the next port, of course, that would be zero in stock, zero, 100, certainly FDIC to insure uh, on most of those assets. Then for that risk capacity bucket that's going to pay for that food, clothing, shelter, and transportation, if we're building a portfolio for that, we'll be somewhere between 20 and 30% in stocks. So let's say on average 25% in stocks and 75% in bonds. You, know, you take a look at the last 50 years, even including 08, 09, the worst year for that. That portfolio, the worst year, it was down approximately 5%. That's something that, to have that extra growth that most people can live with. Of course, if they couldn't, then we'd make, we'd make it more conservative. Then the next layer for the rest of their expenses, and again, you'd mentioned earlier about maintaining purchasing power and a sensitivity of inflation. Whenever you go into these periods that we're going through right now, inflation is certainly not at the top of the average individual's mind regarding investment management. But again, if you have a 30-year-plus plan for retirement, uh, it is going to have a significant effect on your purchasing power for the rest of your life. So let's say at the end of the day on that portfolio, uh, when you enter retirement, you're at 40% in stocks, 40% in stocks and 60 in bonds then oftentimes clients will have money left over at the top of that stack, at the top of the pile, and say, you know what, we're analyzing this, we've done all of our cash flow, we've looked at this, we really have a pragmatically 
just a very good feel for how everything's flowing. We're probably not going to touch this money at the top of the stack. So this really is our legacy bucket. Um, we just refer to it as just the Denuso money bucket stack analysis. So we stack this up and we assign it to different various buckets. And we often end up with three different asset allocations, one for that food, clothing, shelter, and, and um, transportation, the guaranteed income, the next one for the risk uh, tolerance, and the top one for the legacy. And that's where we've come in contact with a lot of from the other side for the Roth IRA conversions. And really, this is on a time horizon based on children, uh, grandchildren, heirs, et cetera. And those portfolios are often at least 70% in stocks up to 100. And those can be very comfortably maintained because they understand that those time horizons are at least 30, 40, uh, in most cases, 50, 60, 70 years or greater. Yeah, and that's actually very interesting. We actually had a show um, that talked about different ways to invest different types of money. So we were talking about how to invest IRAs and how to invest what's called after-tax dollars and how to invest Roth IRA dollars. And if you'll recall, since my general preferred method of spending is to spend the money that you've already paid taxes on before your IRAs, and to spend your IRAs before you spend your Roth IRAs, and to spend your Roth IRAs dollars last, that's kind of consistent with the bucket theory, which the Roth IRAs is most likely what you might call the legacy bucket, and that might be invested, as you said, 70, 30, or even 100% in, in uh, stocks, stock, which still you're getting safety through the enormous diversification. What is there there? With with even with your hundred percent stock portfolio, what is it like something yeah. like eighteen thousand companies represented? Yeah, still oh. yeah, eighteen thousand uh, stocks worldwide in over forty countries. So yeah, true uh, full diversification. Yeah. So what you're doing is you're getting your safety, not necessarily by running to bonds. They're going to pay not a lot in today's dollars, but for long term money. You're getting your safety through diversification, and if it goes up a little, down a little bit, you can probably live with it if it's it's if it's long term. And then let's say for the more intermediate, uh, that might be IRA dollars, then you're still going to have a different asset allocation than you are for let's say the short term, either one year or even years one to five. Yes, and 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 that is correct. Jim, that ties uh, in exactly uh, to what you had in in uh, I know at least one of your books. That you know we are recommending on average we're spending uh, from the uh, non-qualified the taxable accounts first, and generally sometimes will be a blend in there because most clients we want to identify uh, over a long period of time. Again, we'll set a minimum threshold on. A lot of clients will have will agree on a minimum comfort level, so we're taking uh, assets out of those accounts. Then secondarily, the IRA accounts, as you mentioned, and then our final option is the Roths. We want to let those ride. In a lot of cases, we never even come close to touching them. It's just from the taxable accounts plus the IRA assets. Yeah, I, I mean, in a way, I think that's so smart because I've been intimately involved in in probably hundreds of millions, maybe even billions of dollars of Roth IRA conversions that we have recommended or that we have ran numbers for or that um, as a result of the talks that I've given all over the country or even the, the book, The Roth Revolution, and it's pretty rare that I hear people actually spending the Roth IRA. Usually what seems to happen is, and particularly after our firm runs numbers, and we're usually not 
fans of huge Whopper conversions, but a series of small ones, is that that money really is never spent. And a lot of the conversions that that I oversaw, let's say, in the in the late 90s and, and early 2000s are still sitting there, and that is the intent. And it just makes sense that that money that will eventually go to children or even grandchildren. I know in my own case, um, my wife and I made a Roth IRA conversion of $250,000 uh, in 1998. And it is likely that we will never spend that money and that that money will go to our children or even potentially grandchildren. So it doesn't make sense, no matter how bad the euro is, no matter what's going on, um, with the populist political victories in Greece and France to invest that in terms of a short-term investment. And I actually might, through rebalancing, and specifically if I'm, if I'm setting that account in a, in a separate account that's being managed differently, we have a much greater opportunity for significant growth, don't we? Yes, that is correct. And just a, uh, and I always draw back to one of the few things that supposedly um, intrigued Albert Einstein while he uh, graced us while he was on Earth was the miracle of compounding. So it may not seem like a lot. Again, numbers really don't transfer too well through the radio uh, waves here, but to to compound at two or three or four percent greater, or something growing at eight or nine percent versus four or five or six, uh, your uh, grandchildren will have a very large smile on their face. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, we're going to take another quick break, and when we come back, we'll continue this conversation. We'll be right back with P.J. Genuzzo and Jim Lang on the Lang Money Hour. The Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks, featuring the expert advice of Pittsburgh-based CPA attorney Jim Lang. More coming up on KQV AM 1410. The Lang Money Hour continues on KQV AM 1410. For all of your financial needs, turn to Lang Financial Group in Squirrel Hill, 412-521-2732. Let's talk more smart money. Welcome back to the Lang Money Hour. This is Hannah Haytanen Kay, and I'm here with Jim Lang and PJ Denuso. PJ, um, one of the things that I, I, I kind of get it, what you're saying about some of the anxiety in Europe, that in the big long picture that this actually might be a buying opportunity, but certainly not a situation where you want to dump everything. Let me tell you what one of my personal fears is. And, uh, and I'm not quite sure what to do about it, both as a, as a person and an investor and somebody who gives advice uh, to the public. Right now, uh, there, we don't know exactly what's going on with Iran. But there is at least a reasonable chance that they are attempting to develop a uh, nuclear bomb and um, nuclear material that could potentially be detonated, whether it be on, on Israeli soil in Europe or even smuggled to the United States. Uh, Pakistan uh, has quite a bit of, and that's actually documented and known, uh, nuclear capabilities. Uh, North Korea uh, is also scary to me, uh, and perhaps some of these countries might not even detonate something themselves, but they might distribute to uh, fundamentalist extremists. And I would say 
even, <laughs> I don't mean to be a doom and gloom guy, but there's lots of other opportunities for terrorists, you know, with chemical plants and transportation and stadiums and things like that. And as, as tragic as 9-11 is or was, there is the possibility of something on an even greater scale. How would that enter into the investment picture if, if it does at all? Well, that would enter in, Jim. Uh, I would just consider that under the same category of the uh, responses that I had earlier in that uh, we always think that it's unique in what we're going through in anyone's individual life that other individuals haven't gone through before. But we really have gone through, uh, if never the exact same thing, but it certainly rhymes with what we're looking at now. And again, if, uh, to go back to our uh, plan, and if you stay on your plan and you have one, if you have your cash reserves amply, amply funded, if you have your food, clothing, and shelter budget, if you will, your portfolio funded, and you've got a moderate allocation in your risk tolerance, there's really nothing that you would want to do to upset any of those areas. Now, uh, sometimes individuals uh, will, in their cash reserves, have an extra item and be over and above what our recommendation is, and sometimes uh, the topic of gold or precious metals will come up. Uh, very rarely would you ever see anyone, uh, I think, uh, responsibly, generally speaking, talk about having more than 5% of precious metals in your portfolio. So even for consideration, a million-dollar portfolio, if someone had $50,000 in gold, gold coins, et cetera, that would be, I mean, a very large, well, uh, a lot higher than the national averages, certainly. But really, that would be the extent of... Uh, protection as far as portfolio insurance, uh, just reacting, human emotions. And there's a lot of folks even on talk shows that give advice, you know, and and that's really great that you brought that up because I'm just thinking of one thing that we run into an awful lot. And we tell people that we talk to, both clients as well as prospective clients when we're doing consulting work, that if you're going to pay attention to anyone regarding investment advice to only listen, and I can, I can repeat only, individuals who are ma managing material money, that they're managing large assets, not just a small amount, and that they have a, again, material track record, that they've been doing this, and there's a track record at least going back for decades. Uh, what you'll notice is most of the people that get people excited are not professional money managers. They've never managed a penny in their life. Uh, and if they have managed anything, it's a small amount and or they don't have a track record. So it's completely different. When you put it into context, and these individuals are going out there trying to grab sound bites and hoping, hey, if I throw enough things up against the wall, I'll get a national quote at some point in time. But when you go back and take a look at what they, at the things that they come up with, it's at the end of the day, it's amazing how many times, two, three, four years later, you look back and say, Everybody was reacting to that individual and how ludicrous it is, you know, a couple of years later. Thank goodness I didn't follow that crazy advice. Well, actually, it's pretty interesting because even if we think back about 2008, you know, with, with uh, the meltdown of, uh, of uh, some of our financial institutions, that if people had had their cash and short-term money set aside, that they would actually do pretty well. So, so for example... Can you give us a, a rough idea of, let's even say the worst 10 years, which is the last 10 years in the market, how people would have done with 
let's even say a 60-40 uh, portfolio using the index funds that you promote, which are dimensional funds and through dimensional fund advisors, would they have actually done pretty well even with all the turmoil that we did experience? Yeah, we can argue that the first 10 years of this uh this century that we're living in right now was arguably, if we go back 150 years, the worst decade uh, from a lot of perspectives. And our average 60-40 portfolio was north of 6% on an annualized rate of return after all fees, expenses, et cetera. So we have to be careful, you know, how far we're beating ourselves up. And, you know, we're talking about how bad the market can be. It, we never want to challenge the finance gods, as we say, that's with a lowercase g. You know, we never want to challenge them. But you would have a hard time replicating another 10-year period, such as the last uh, 10 when you had two Uber bear markets, 2001 and 2002, and then 08 and 2009 contained within that decade. And yet we still had a re very reasonable positive rate of return in the portfolio. And again, just to put it in perspective, with that 40% stock portfolio we were talking about earlier, Jim, you know that was down in the worst year in the last 50 years, about 14%. Uh, 20% stock portfolio is just down four, four and a half. So you can dramatically protect yourself with the asset allocation if it's structured properly in your portfolio. Well, let, let me ask you this. So, so right now, I know that there's a lot of people who are freaking out. Not, you know, I, I see them in my office, if not every day, at least quite often. I'm thinking about one woman. Oh, no, everything's different. And, I, and I'll tell you what else is pretty funny. You know, I have, uh, I, I, I certainly have a lot of different type of clients, but I have actually two groups that I do a fair amount of work with. One are the college professors, and they're certainly a very bright group. And politically, they tend to be on the liberal side. And I also work with a lot of engineers, and they're also a bright, very bright group, and they tend to be on the conservative side. And the engineers say, oh, man, this country, you know, if Obama gets elected, we're just going down the tubes. It's going to be terrible. I'm really afraid more afraid than I've ever been. And then you talk to the college professors and they say, oh man, the way the economy is with those Republicans, I'm so afraid. <laughs> it's pretty It's pretty interesting. Um, and I guess your reaction is, whether you're a Republican or, or a Democrat, that the, the best thing to do is to start with a good long-term financial plan and then stick with it. Is that is that fair? Yeah, that's, that's correct. Not to start uh, backwards and Picking investments and uh, letting that lead your decisions. You really need to start with a good, solid plan and work forward. And then surprisingly, if you just follow your nose, uh, when we go through the process with prospective clients and clients, it really is, even though we arguably are talking about very high-level concepts, it's very brought down to a very blue-collar level and very understandable. Well, what, what you do, I, I frankly, I've, I've been in business over 30 years. I've never seen any financial advisor do the the detail work that you do even down to the cable bill and the phone bill and you do that to help you develop those different buckets that you were talking about is that right yeah that's correct i mean <clears throat> it seems rather anal but we tell clients if it's ten dollars or more per month we want to capture it and we do have very categories in there for adult <laughs> beverages and different things as well so you know we're, we're making sure we're taking care of everybody's um I'm a wine guy myself, so we want to make sure we got that, you know, red wine. I want to make sure we got that in the budget. But, uh, yeah, it really is important, and, and, and it really brings a lot of confidence to it because, you know, one thing that we tell individuals is that we're not going to – we can't just sit there. A lot of times people come in and they expect, okay, you're the expert. Give me the answers. 
And some people are a little bit dismayed in initial conversation that when we tell them, you know, really as far as this goes, we're in a room full of equals, and it's a collaborative process. It's customized for each and every individual new new family unit, individual that we come into contact with. And if we work through it together, and they're surprised at how well it comes into focus and how much of it they understand and also how high of a comfort level that they have. And we've been told numerous times over the years that, you know, there's, uh, you know, people joke around, like you said, they come in your office and we hear, hey, it's hard to tell you guys apart, you all wear suits and you're, you know, you talk well, et cetera. But at the end of the day, we've heard, uh, I mean, it's, I can't even put a number on it of how many people have said, you know what, I get a lot of answers from people and they tell me what to do and give me your life savings, let me manage it. But they don't know any of the they don't know any of the data or any information we just went to. They don't know what my home equity line of credit payment is, what my electric bill is, what my car payment is, if I have one. And they understand. I've often said that Pittsburgh, uh, you know, Pittsburgh and Pittsburgh investors in a town is not uh, that don't just inherently. I mean, you do in your in your in your client uh, in your client base, but they don't really have a Ph.D. in life. But I mean, a Ph.D., but they do have a Ph.D. in life, uh, not in investing. And just a lot of blue collars is a very high common sense level in and around Pittsburgh and southwestern Pennsylvania. And the process that we go through really appeals to that uh, Ph.D. in common sense that Pittsburghers have. Yeah, I, I sometimes think of the millionaires next door that I think both you and I service. And I know I particularly have a lot of clients. And what's interesting is uh, this is something that a, a lot of Pittsburghers and, and let's say the two groups have in common, the engineers the college professors, where a lot of my clients started life with not a lot of money. They got married even relatively young, and, you know, they had the mortgage payment and the car payment and the kids' braces and then the kids' college, and it was really tough to save money. But when they put away money in their retirement plans, a lot of them are IRA-heavy, but there is often a huge difference between what they have, even if they made the same amount of money, and it all comes back to the asset allocation that they chose for those many years. So for the people who were, let's say, risk-averse or trying to time the market, they often got hurt, and they might have 50% or less of the people who had a better asset allocation recognize that the money was long-term and had the money more in in the market, and particularly in your case, you know, with the 18,000 different companies and the extreme asset allocation and the other thing that you guys do that i like is that you tend to to weight or overweight areas that have traditionally done better like small cap versus large cap or value versus growth yes well let me ask you this um so there's all this anxiety out there and like you said the average investor is getting six percent less than the investment the underlying investment that that he is invested in or she is invested in well, well who benefits from all this anxiety you know you you hear i don't want to name names because i don't want to be sued but you see crazy people running up and down you know with their hair on fire on tv and on the radio uh warning people about this and that um who who is this anxiety serving um, you know, really, uh, at the end of the day, again, it is the people, uh, the financial media and the securities industry, uh, the securities, securities industry, uh, on average, loves anxiety. They love turnover, turnover in portfolio because turnovers equals cash flow. 
they really don't have, have any inherent reason to be behind a buy-and-hold strategy. Uh, I've been amazed, and every time I hear the story over the years when someone will come in and they'll bring a family member in, and sometimes it'll be a, a middle-aged client, I'll bring mom or dad in or mom and dad, and they'll say, you know, mom and dad are just getting some really terrible service, and I just can't get over it. You know, they have a portfolio, and let's it's a sizable portfolio every time when they discuss it. And they'll say, I just can't get over it. You know, they're not getting any service, any recommendations, any help, et cetera. And I'll just uh, respond by saying, even without knowing anything about it, I'll say, well, they're just buying and holding. They're not. They're just holding on to the stocks that they have in a portfolio. And every single time, you know, the son or daughter will say, well, how do you know that? You don't even know anything about them yet. And I'll say, well, that's why they're not hearing anything back from their guy because <laughs> there's no revenues there. There's no income there. So it's really the more you can get people excited and uh, and anxious, the more trading there's going to be. And, again, the securities industry just loves it. Uh, you take a look at any any during entities' periods of high anxiety, all of the, uh, let's even say, lower-cost brokerage firms – the discount shops, uh, their volumes just spike through the roof. And it's it's an extraordinarily profitable period for them from trading expenses. Yeah, and, and see, where you and I have a different model, um, which is what I would call a true fiduciary model, where we both not only have a moral but a legal obligation to do what we think is best for the client. So rather than charging a client every time we buy or sell something, we actually have a fee, which I I mentioned earlier, that we split, me doing the, let's say, some of the conceptual stuff, the Roth stuff, how much you could spend, some of the tax savings, estate planning, retirement planning, et cetera, you doing the investments. Um, and we're not, and we don't make money every time there is a buy or a sell. And that's actually a much different model. And the other thing is, um, and I don't want to mention any companies, but we have a moral and legal obligation to do what is best for the client, not what is best for our employer or the wirehouse or whatever company, financial company, that somebody's working. Um, you, also meant, you also sometimes talk about what you call the mal-location of capital. And uh, I know that we have quite a few golfers out there, so maybe you could change this to a golf analogy to – the types of investment mistakes people make and who does well in the long run. Yeah, it seems like a lot of the younger authors have been spinning. Uh, Charlie Ellis, uh, decades ago, had uh, written a book, and uh, basically a lot of people just refer to it as How to Win the Loser's Game. And in it, uh, he was a tennis fan, and it's the exact same story with golfers. When you talk to world-class golfers or world-class tennis players, you'll get the same response when you ask them, well, how do you win? How are you uh, at this extraordinarily high level? And everyone expects them to see, well, I'm out hitting the ball. I'm, uh, I'm hitting it harder, longer, faster, et cetera. But what you'll hear from them time and time again is that my goal is to have the fewest errors and make the fewest mistakes, and that the fewest errors and fewest mistakes equal success, winning the tournament, winning the championship, et cetera. And it's a direct story, direct analogy into our business when we start off with using strategic asset allocation, Jim, you mentioned earlier, not being tactical, not trying to time the market, which a lot of people are going through this emotional pull right now. Oh, it looks worse. I had 70% in stocks. I'm going to move down to 30, cut it in half, what have you. Then the diversification, indexing versus active and rebalancing. 
by along those four major road markers in investing, you're going to have less errors and less mistakes at every fork in the road, which is going to put you in a winner's circle at the end. Yeah, it sounds a little bit boring. You know, you're not going to have the thrill of of double, tripling, or even doing better with your Apple stock, for example. Um, but you're also not going to have the enormous losses that you might with a more active strategy. And it sounds like this is actually uh, what some of the writers might call a kind of a grown-up approach, which is a series of low-cost index funds using well-diversified portfolios, and in your case, actually, the different buckets of different portfolios. Yeah, slow, slow and steady wins the day. Uh, when you talk about the adult approach, I would say uh, Jack Bogle of Vanguard is the ultimate adult. <laughs> I mean, he's the senior member of our uh, area of the world, and Jack's been preaching the benefit of indexing since the 1970s along with the uh, team at DFA. And, uh, yeah, the ultimate adult, slow and steady, minimize your errors, and have a plan and stay on your plan. Well, we don't, we don't have time to go through the actual investment results, but they are pretty impressive. Okay, I want to thank you for listening to another Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks. Thanks for listening to the Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks. Check out the show archives and listen on demand anytime at retiresecure.com. KQV listeners can receive free tickets to Jim Lang's Pittsburgh area workshops and more. Call the Lang Financial Group at 412-521-2732. That's 412-521-2732. And reserve your seats and meet Jim Lang in person. Again, that's 412-521-2732.